European Union has not treated us well. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the podcast on Europe and its political extremes. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. I'm Tom. I've been a lobbyist and spin doctor in Brussels for many years, and I've spent the last decade fighting climate change. In this episode, the nationalist populists who are undermining Europe's climate agenda. We also talked to Bas Eichout, a Dutch Green vying for a top job in Brussels. He shares his lessons from the bungled tax on diesel fuel in France that sparked the huge yellow vest protests. First, Tom and I discuss why those protests are legitimate, despite how some of them have been hijacked by the far right. So, uh, Tom, what are your thoughts on whether green taxes are a penalty on working people? Take diesel taxes, which was the specific that happened in, in France, right? The specific trigger for the, the specific gilets trigger jaunes. For, for the gilets jaunes demonstrations yeah. was, was an increase in the diesel tax. And diesel taxes have increased quite a lot in France over the last couple of years. And the, the central issue you've got is if you live in the center of a city, most of which have pretty impressive public transport infrastructure, you don't have to drive. If you live in a rural area and you're completely dependent on your car, diesel's a very significant life cost. It's a huge, huge number of diesel cars in France. Essentially, you put a flat tax across the country and it does have different impacts on different communities. Now, the vast majority of the actual real gilets jaunes demonstrations have happened in rural parts of France and have been peaceful and quite straightforward. What happened in Paris with this very, very small group of people who had a large number of television cameras focused on them while they were chucking stuff and setting cars on fire. This is not about diesel taxes. This is far-right infiltration, and that this was planned, focused behaviour in order to try and kick some stuff off and give Macron a hard time, essentially because he's practically the only pro-European left standing. So you've got to dissect, I think, the, the, the very different things that are happening. But in terms of the actual social impact of so-called green taxes, you absolutely have to look at how you do redistribution. Basically, you should be hitting people hard who drive cars in cities. But that means you need an intelligent taxation system. When the climate community look at what happened in Paris with the Gilets jaunes, are they saying, oh dear, this is a real potential setback, or are they saying opportunity? When you think about the low-carbon transition, as it generally gets called, right? We are going to electrify all of our transport systems. We are driving towards renewables in our energy system. We are changing the shape of our economy in a very, very significant way because a transport system, for example, driven by electricity, is the economics of that system are completely different to a transport system driven by fossil fuels. And this is complex stuff. And if you look back through history... There are very, very few examples of well-managed social transitions. Like, the transition into the Industrial Revolution was chaos. 
this what? is one we got to try and get right. Speaking of energy transitions, do you have an energetic transition into I the next part of our show? Totally do. I mean, I can insert a swipe there, like a... <laughs> or you could do an artful transition. Um, let's go with both. So we're now going to have a game in which I ask you multiple choice questions to which there are no good answers. I'm going to focus my questions on Europe's populists and where they stand on climate change. Question number one. Over the summer, a member of the European Parliament by the name of John Stuart Agnew, he's a UKIP MEP, produced a draft report on making farming more environmentally friendly. This was his opinion on a commission proposal. And the report was for the European Parliament's Committee on Agriculture and Rural Development, where he served as the rapporteur, basically the person who writes some of these opinions. They're considered reasonably important. Now, in the report, Agnew called for removing language about climate action and carbon dioxide, the main greenhouse gas that, that is that causes global warming, from those funding programmes. And I want you to pick out which of the following loony reasons Agnew gave for climate change actually happening. <laughs> A. An increase in hot air since the 1960s and 70s from climate activists who are building up heat by marching, meeting, demonstrating in towns and cities across the world. <laughs> B. The galaxy. In the form of cosmic rays which lead to a sharp temperature increase. <laughs> or C. The low Earth orbit of space debris reflecting sunlight back at the Earth, therefore increasing the overall temperature inside the atmosphere. None of these really strike me as being particularly plausible. I guess I like, um, I'd really like to think that there's a band out there called Cosmic Ray. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> there may well be. I'm going to go for Cosmic Ray. So you're right. He yes. did actually blame yes. the galaxy yes. and its cosmic rays. But he didn't stop there. Because obviously, having denied the reality of climate science, he was going to have to go heavy on alternative theories. So he mentioned gravitational pull, which apparently, I, how that affects temperature is completely beyond me, but okay. The orbit and tilt of the sun, a, a common theory amongst the very, very small band of loonies that still deny climate science. Uh, ocean currents and water vapour. So, steam. <laughs> but CO2, he reminded his readers, is an irreplaceable plant food. Irreplaceable plant food, yeah. And the effect of human activity on changing CO2 levels is negligible. That's extraordinary. I mean, this kind of denial of climate change science was unheard of in the Parliament even a few years ago. But these are the classic tropes spouted by a number of these kind of these mad people who still do this. But it also points to the power of the rapporteur. If you can get yourself into this position, you've got a pretty pretty much a carte blanche to spout complete lunacy. And so the cosmic ray theory, is there anything to that? No. Okay. It's crap. Right. <laughs> Let's just be very, very clear. This guy's totally unhinged. This is bullshit. <laughs> okay. Question number two. Poland is currently hosting this year's annual UN meeting on climate change. 
what's known as a COP, or Conference of the Parties. And this is number 24. So COP24 is taking place in the great city of Katowice. They have a pretty solid dislike of environmentalists generally and environmentalism, and mainly because they're very, very attached to coal. This climate meeting is literally taking place in the heart of coal country. Don't the Poles really, uh, they regard coal as their sort of energy bulwark against Russia too? There's kind of national identity tied in with this. So there is a huge amount of national identity uh, wrapped up in this. And indeed, Polish politicians actually sometimes dress up in the traditional Polish garb of coal miners, which is actually quite... I mean, it's quite impressive looking clothes, these these jackets, collarless jackets with braided buttonholes and a whole number of other things. But it's kind of a, a traditional miner's uh, uh, wardrobe. And What, uh, they use that fancy dress for mining or it's kind of more of a no, it folk was, it was kind of thing. it was a folk identity thing associated with the coal right. miners. The president of Poland, Duda, went to a meeting with the cop president wearing miner's clothes wearing this this kind of folk outfit so yeah they're really making a point about this now what's interesting is there is this theory that it's their bulwark against russia and against russian gas actually they import coal from russia (laughs) (laughs) because because the stuff that's in poland is so low quality it's lignite it produces vast amounts of pollution like crazy amounts of pollution it's the dirtiest possible fuel it's killing polish people left, right and centre because of the air quality problems. Katowice itself, I mean, you basically can't breathe walking down the street on many days. Lots of kids with face masks and all of that stuff. Terrible lung disease. And also, of course, all of that pollution is blowing across the rest of Europe. The prevailing wind goes west, so it blows into France and Germany, doing a huge amount of damage. So, here's my question. Which of the following companies do you think the Polish government, who are the COP presidency, and uh, run by the hard-right Law and Justice Party, selected among its sponsors for the UN Climate Conference. Was it the European Union's highest quality coking coal company, JSW? Was it Toron Energy, a major power provider from coal, gas and oil that's headquartered in Katowice? Or was it PGE, Poland's largest energy utility energy sector company with very large interest in coal-fired power stations and indeed lignite mines. Or was it all of the above? It's hard for me to conceive that you could hold a climate conference and have like three of the biggest coal interests. I guess these are really major coal interests in Poland, all sponsoring it. I mean, they couldn't be that blatant. So... I don't know. I'll go with the local company, the whatever it was. Katowice. The, the Katowice-based Toron Energy. That's B. I'll go with B. Okay. Well, you're right. But it's also sponsored by JSW and PGE. No way. And indeed, the banks that finance them. <laughs> God. It is quite literally sponsored by coal. So here's climate... Yeah, here's the major global UN climate talks sponsored by the companies producing the CO2 that's causing climate change. What is their justification for this? Uh, It's down to the presidency. 
Polish hold the presidency. They are the COP president because they're just this year, just this year. But they're always hosting damn climate conferences. They host them as often as they possibly can. The way that the UN system works is that the the meeting tours the world. Every time it gets to Eastern Europe, Poland immediately puts their hand up. And these things cost a lot of money. And so, you know, if they're willing to pay for everybody else, it's like, yeah, fine. Boss Eichout is a member of the Dutch Green Left, and he's all about protecting the climate without penalizing ordinary working people. He's also been a prominent member of the European Parliament since 2009, and now he's a candidate for the European Greens to succeed Jean-Claude Juncker as president of the European Commission. That's admittedly a long shot. The job usually goes to a socialist, a conservative, or a liberal. But Europe's political landscape is fragmenting. Parties like the Greens, as well as parties from the far left and far right, are expected to do well in European elections in May 2019. If the Greens, who currently hold around 7% of the seats in the European Parliament, end up with more than 10% of those seats, they could play a significant role in deciding who runs Europe and how it's run until the middle of the next decade. Boss and I talked about how the Greens would go about fighting global warming while avoiding the kind of backlash, burning tires, flying cobblestones, and the mass deployment of police seen in France amid the Yellow Vest's protests. I first asked him why training as a chemist was such good preparation for becoming a Green lawmaker. It can be helpful in the negotiations. Then you feel that people know, okay, we don't agree with him, but at least we need to do our homework when we talk to him. And that's good. That's good. It's also for lobbyists, right? If they enter your office, you know, they they are sometimes coming up with really, really nonsense arguments. And they know with me they can't get away with it. So they need to do their homework a bit better. What is the most preposterous argument that you've ever heard? From well, but this is this is really you know companies like Shell who are then still trying to defend that they're doing very good things for 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 the climate and and then trying to come up with no, but you, we need then carbon capture and storage. But if you then talk about the volumes they need to put under the ground, it it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. So if we move to a zero emission economy, sorry, then there's no place for companies like Shell if they don't shift away from gas. On to the topic of the far right. Why does the far right so often attack efforts to protect the climate? Is it <laughs> I'll, I'll throw out a suggestion. Sure, yeah. Is it because climate change is a global problem with no national solution, making climate just kind of too much of a head fuck for somebody with a nationalist <laughs> paradigm to handle? I think I think it is it, it doesn't fit the narrative, no. And the other way around, they are fighting the elite, right? That that's their big fight. We are we are against the elite, and somehow climate change is a difficult one. It's indeed cross border, but also the solutions are quite fundamental to our economy. So I think all that together is so challenging that they feel like this is another elitist project, and at least they know that it's it's it resonates well if they tell that back home. So I think it's an easy. It's an easy uh, victim. This climate is fairly easy for them to ridicule because scientists are rarely 100% sure of causalities. Yeah. 
And I, I just wonder if that's part of it. And also, as you kind of was suggesting earlier, fossil fuel industries are kind of in bed with the far right because they can kind of use that as leverage. Well, yeah, but you know what I never get my head around is that that if you are really, you know, most of the populists are so much concerned about the Islam, right? That's another famous uh, enemy. Well, sorry, by we are importing fossil fuels every day, billions and billions, and, and that is going to regimes like Saudi Arabia or apparently Iran that might be even worse. So maybe even from that perspective, you could say maybe climate change policies would be in your benefit for a populist. So, but apparently that's all too complicated and then it's just easier to, to say that it's another elitist project that wants to conquer the world uh, through climate change policy. Very interesting. I wonder what they would say to that. I could imagine it would be, well, you know, you know, Islam at home with Islam is fine. We just don't want it over here or something. But we yeah. are. But then we, subsidizing regimes who are then subsidizing mosques, you know, uh, it's OK. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll leave that to them to explain. So a tactic of the far right is to say that ordinary people are paying higher prices for, say, petrol because of mm-hmm. what they would call environmental zealotry. You can see... You can see. You studied the language pretty well. Well, uh, once you go into that rabbit hole, you, <laughs> you pick up some of their terms. You can see some of that reflected in the protests by the Gilets Jaunes or yeah. the Yellow Jackets against fuel prices, and that's been backed by Marine Le, Marine Le Pen of the French far right. I sort of see a threatening message there for the Greens, uh, you know, that environmentalism is helping drive inequalities in society. And here's my question. Uh If the Greens really want to be the alternative to populism and even win over some of those protesters, doesn't that imply talking a bit less about the climate? No, no, really not. But but I do think, you know, the the point is that that where the populists are feeding on is, of course, a lot of dissatisfaction that that is around in the society. And to be very honest, we Greens see the same. We see a huge dissatisfaction... I think by – we always call them the center parties, the status quo parties. I think the problem is what people feel is that too long the center parties have been giving all the advantages, all the credits to big companies at the cost of the consumers. If you see in the euro crisis, in the time of the euro crisis, you would expect – Politically, what you do is then make sure that labor is getting cheaper, right? Because then you can create employment. What happened is that taxation on labor went up and taxation on profits for companies went down. Why? Because every European country is competing for those companies to get it and therefore lowering the tax levels. And now with the Brexit coming up, what are the Brits promising? Even lower tax rate for companies because they want to attract the companies away from Europe. This race to the bottom is ongoing for decades now. And people feel that. You see it in the statistics that, that, you know, that companies are paying less and less taxes and that it needs to come from somewhere or you put the taxes on that, but it's less mobile, and very cynically, that's the people, or you are cutting your expenditure, and there you get the entire austerity that we've seen during the crisis. That together created the feeling that there is a huge disproportionate and unfair distribution of the costs. If then on top, and then we get to the green policies, if then on top, and that's a bit what Macron is doing, his first real green action is only a levy 
a tax, a further tax on consumption for the people, then of course people will feel that they're being hit once more. So I don't see this resistance as going against green policies because weeks before, same Paris had a huge climate march, people concerned about climate. That's not the problem. The problem is if you're doing the policies wrong, if you don't do a fair distribution of the costs, then it goes wrong. And I think Macron did it wrong. In the Netherlands, we call ourselves Groen Links, which stands for Green Left. And I think that says it all. For us, green policy should go hand in hand with economic fair distribution, a left policy. Then it can work. If you don't do that, then you will only feed the dissatisfaction that we see now in the, in the Paris streets. I mean, distilling that green left mm -hmm. sales pitch is your challenge. That is going to be the challenge, of course. What is going to be very important in the campaign is that we green show that green policies should always be combined with fair economic policies, which really means it's it's kind of putting the the principle in place that the polluter really pays, which is not what we're doing right now. For example, in the Netherlands, very simple example, the more energy you use, the less tax on energy you pay, relatively speaking. Usually, if you want to do a progressive tax system, you are taxing that what you want to have less, right? So, so, but the big companies pay less, the big energy consumers pay less taxes on their kilowatt hour of energy consumed than a normal citizen. That kind of unfairness, that is really eating this, it's, it's, it's undercutting, undermining the support for climate policies, which are there, but we need to do it right. And getting that message across to the Gilets Jaunes, are you optimistic about that? I think I think until now uh, we have managed, at least in a couple of these countries, but I think also in France you see the popularity of the French Greens going up. So it's not only that, that Le Pen is profiting from it. I think our challenge is to really get this story also broader in countries like Italy, for example. Whether we're going to succeed in that? Well, you can ask me again in May, but, but I do feel that the environmental issues, climate issues, they are there. People are concerned about it. But indeed, we have to get the messaging right that it's not about just doing climate policies, but it's also really about putting the right policies in place. Yeah. Okay. Now, I think that you have 45 of 751 seats currently. Well, we have, to, we have uh, if you do the region is the if, and then we have 52 seats for the moment. 52 seats. Yes. I'll push you for a projection yeah, after uh, May uh, 2019. Uh, what, what at least are you aiming for? Yeah, I'm not going to hang myself on a number yet, but I think we can go into the double digits percentage-wise, right? But that means really that we have to, the success that we see now which is now continuing in, in France, I think that we also have to see in Spain, Italy. So then we can really uh, go up in the numbers, of course. And we will have to ally with a couple of, of partners in the East, in the Central European countries, where it might not be the classic Green Party, but also there you have a lot of dissatisfaction with the Center parties, but there it's more around corruption. The dissatisfaction, go to Bulgaria, go to Romania. There's a lot of dissatisfaction with corruption in the government. And there you see also new parties coming up, new movements going up. And I think they are very close to where we stand for as Greens. And if we can make that all to happen together, then, then we can go into these double digits. Okay. So how, in your experience as a politician, does the populist far right suppress climate science or promote policies that harm the climate? Have you seen 
evidence of this, say, in Dutch politics or in your everyday work in the European Parliament? You see the populists uh, fighting it. They try to put in amendments on any climate policy. They put in amendments that it, uh, just, just deleting entire articles. Really? So we're talking about e- EFDD and ENF? And, and ENF. Yeah. Sorry about those acronyms. The EFDD and ENF are the two main groups of nationalist populists in the European Parliament. The EFDD is a motley crew comprised mainly of members of the UK Independence Party and the Italian Five Star Movement. The ENF, on the other hand, is far right to its core. It's mainly made up of members of the French National Rally, the crypto-fascists formerly known as the National Front, the Italian League, and the Dutch Party for Freedom. Yeah, they're just putting in a, you know, really literally amendments, delete Article 8, delete Article 9, delete Article 10, so more or less you don't have a, you don't have a law left anymore. Are they doing that in order to be vexatious, or are they doing that in order to really genuinely change the law? So it- no, I never get the feeling they, uh, they genuinely want to change it. They just put it in so that they can show on the record that they have been putting in amendments, but they know it will be voted down. They are never present when we are discussing compromises. The only thing they do is putting in amendments and doing plenary speeches. That amounts to wasting people's time? It's certainly wasting a lot of taxpayers' money on people who are just, you know, only pretending to be very active in a plenary speech, but for the rest, I never see them. For the EPP, so the Christian Democrats, uh, they they are part of the negotiations at least, and they tr- they try to weaken the law, but at least they do that through being active in the process. The real populists on the right, ENF, uh, less about EFDD, by the way, but that's because we have the five stars, who is always a kind of a, you know, you never know which phase is turning up. Uh, but but on environmental issues, they are quite helpful. But all the ENF parties, you only see them with amendments. You vote them down, and you never see them anymore until a plenary speech where they just say that it's all nonsense. You you take note and you move on. Okay. Now we see the far right. AFD in Germany, pushing for Germany now to leave the Paris Agreement. Yeah. Do you think that this is a kind of common coordinated tactic by the far right across Europe? I'm not sure to what extent it's coordinated, but I do think they are using the same playbook. They all see that fighting Europe, fighting the EU, fighting multilateralism comes together with also fighting climate change policies and and therefore fighting Paris. And I think that that some of these players have shown that it brings you a kind of a consistent agenda. And and others are copying, and I think the AFD is just doing that because, of course, in Germany there's a huge debate around the energy transition, etc. And in order to be different from the others, they do this. And they know that's the way to get attention, and that's just copying. They're just using the same playbook. Right, right, right. And what happens in a Brussels where there are where the the parliament has instead of 10% far right populists let's mm-hmm. say 20% let's say where the commission has four commissioners from countries where climate skepticism is rife that is a very very plausible scenario for post May 2019 are you worried about the implications for Europe's climate leadership 
to be very honest, I'm more worried what what the centre parties are going to do, and then especially the Christian Democrats. I think that that is going to be the big question. I you mean, mean if Orban is still part of that group? If Orban is still part of that group, but also look Austria, where the Christian Democrats are now working together with the FPÖ, so they are now getting the 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 the, the right wing populist, extreme right populist into the government. So what you see happening is that the EPP is slowly shifting to that in that direction and then it becomes much more serious. But I think until now we can handle it. But well, that's probably the the center party needs some good counterweight on the other side and that's probably where the greens come in. So if there was one country, Poland would be the most problematic Poland, from the climate perspective Poland with their far-right yeah. government. Well, Poland is most outspoken on it, yes. And in that sense, they have been the most problematic one. But again, um, the biggest problem for me more is a country like Germany that, that, is, that is kind of, of course, different, absolutely different. But, but if you look at how they position them in the latest files around coal phase-out, around cars they are very close to Poland suddenly. And that is, of course, a problem when such a reliable, solid country is moving its positions to these kind of topics so much to the right, then, of course, it becomes difficult to get to any meaningful deal in Europe. That is really a problem. Uh, French uh, President Emmanuel Macron has basically said, it's me or Salvini. Yeah. In these May 2019 European elections, Macron seems to be warning voters that a vote for anyone else but his kind of Macronist liberal center will help the far right, as embodied by the Italian Lega and Matteo Salvini. And Salvini, of course, will undermine the European Union and its humanistic values. What is the Greens' response to this kind of rhetorical challenge from Macron? Why and why is it so troublesome for you? It's not troublesome. It's dangerous. Uh, because if you are if you're just limiting the debate around Europe to a very binary question either you're for or against what you're doing is making the people who are critical on Europe but absolutely see the values of European cooperation you put them in a kind of a corner where they don't feel there is an alternative to them and that is really very dangerous. I mean, I understand it from Macron's perspective. This is what made him president in France. But to be very honest, that can work in France because in the end you have to choose a president. So it's a binary choice in the end. Europe, at the European level, it doesn't work. We have a plural, we have many different parties and then trying to make it a binary choice with for or against, you're not only making your own position maybe stronger, you're also helping the populists. That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EU Screams, and like us on Facebook. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening. <laughs>